may be seated. Well, thank you for being here once again. Before we get started, I'm going to ask that you join me in prayer for some of our teenagers. Um, a lot of our teens, actually, they're not going to be here tonight because they're in Flint at a little weekend retreat conference called D-Now, Discipleship Now. And as we speak, they're starting their last session. They've had three sessions. They're starting the last one tonight. And so if you will, just throughout tonight, you know, as we move forward the next, few, the next couple hours, be praying for them as they conclude this conference. The series, the mini-series they went through this weekend was called Life After. And the idea of life after was what do you do once you said yes to Christ? What does life after that look like? And how do you live according to what you now know? And so I'm excited for them, and I hope that you join me in prayer for them. They're in the series called Life After, or we're in a different series called Life Without Compromise. And so if you will, open your Bibles to the book of Daniel with me. We're going to be in Daniel the rest of this evening, specifically Daniel chapter 4. And if this is new to you or you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series, Life Without Compromise, trying to learn from Daniel, Daniel's friends, and others throughout the book of Daniel how to live a life where we are fully submitted to God and that we live with no compromise. We live firmly planted in what we believe, which is the scripture. We believe in God's commands. And over the last several weeks, as we've looked through chapters 1 through 3, tonight we're going to be in chapter 4, as we look through chapters 1 through 3, we have been reading, to no surprise, a story about Daniel. I'm sure that's not breaking anyone's, blowing anyone's mind here. The book of Daniel is mostly about Daniel. And over the last several weeks, that's what we've seen, is that every story, except one, has been about Daniel but every story has been about Daniel or Daniel's friends doing what we're trying to learn from, living without compromise. Chapter one of this book, we learned, we were introduced to Daniel. Daniel was um, a young boy at the time being brought out of Judah into the land of Babylon in exile. Him and his friends were taken into exile into this new land that was not friendly to their faith. So we got to see Daniel go through a new situation that he was not familiar with. Later on in that chapter, we learned about Daniel's first encounter with the king, his first encounter we had to, where he had to stand firm in what he believed in. That was at the king's court when he, was, when he refused to eat the king's food because he believed it was unclean. So we looked at that and we saw how Daniel lived without compromise even in the face of the king telling him what to eat. The next chapter was similar to the first one, where again, we see Daniel living without compromise. In chapter two, we saw Daniel still firmly planted in what he believed about Jesus, firmly planted in what he believed about God. We saw Daniel have to go in front of the king and offer a interpretation to a dream he had not yet heard. The king wanted, a, wanted his dream interpreted, but he wouldn't tell Daniel or the other wise men what the dream was. And so Daniel had to be firmly planted in his faith that God would deliver, reveal to him the dream that the king had had. And so chapters 1 and chapters 2, both we see Daniel living out this central theme, life without compromise. In chapter 3, although we don't see Daniel, we still see this theme play out. We see Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see these three men live without compromise, 
even when they are in front of the king and all the king's wise men, all the king's council, all the king's government, and say no to bowing down to a false idol. And the king punishes them for it. But again, at the end of that chapter, we saw God deliver them from that punishment, but they went into it not knowing the outcome when they jumped into that fire, when they're thrown into that fire. So chapters 1, 2, and 3 all have the central theme, and it's all about Daniel or Daniel's friends. It's all kind of Daniel adjacent. And tonight in chapter 4, we're going to take a turn that is 100% different than the previous three chapters. In fact, I don't say this lightly, but I genuinely believe that this might be one of the most interesting, one of the most strange chapters in all the Bible. Chapter 4 of the book of Daniel is an interesting chapter in the Bible. It has an interesting story, has an interesting conclusion, and I would even go as far to say that the author of this chapter is interesting. Because as you're going to see over the rest of this chapter, as, as you read chapter 4, you're going to see that this is written in the, thir- in the first person. And who is writing it? King Nebuchadnezzar is writing it. The king of Babylon the most powerful man in that time, the one who ruled Babylon, the most powerful nation in that day and age, wrote a chapter in your Bible. And I need, I need us to understand how crazy that is for a moment. That would be as if today, President Biden or former President Trump or former President Obama, whoever was the leading nation ruler, the one who had all the power, It would be as if they came and wrote down this decree about their newfound relationship with God. Could you imagine how crazy that would be to see tomorrow morning the president gave a a document that wrote out all the things that God has done in their lives over the last few months? Could you imagine how different they would lead knowing that that is the way they see the world? They've been fully changed through a relationship with God. That is what we're going to read tonight. Is the king, the most powerful man of all the world, fully surrendering to God. And we're going to see what that looks like, how that occurred. But like I said, chapter 4 is interesting. Here's how chapter 4 begins. If you read with me, starting in verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I'm sure you caught that. Again, this is in the first person. It is Nebuchadnezzar writing to all the people about this radical change that has happened in his life, something amazing that he wants to share with the people. And the king, as he just wrote, again, this is radical change. And he's sharing about the radical change that he's experienced. And it begins with this. He says in verse 2, peace be multiplied to you. Peace be multiplied to you. Now on the surface, that's a very easy claim to make. On the surface, it's a very simple phrase. But you've got to understand, this man just had a radical change. He's not talking about a worldly peace. No, King Nebuchadnezzar is talking about a godly peace, a supernatural peace. King Nebuchadnezzar is talking about something that he's never yet experienced until this moment. When he tells the people, peace be multiplied to you, it is something more than he's ever experienced. He wants those around him to see what he's seen. 
King Nebuchadnezzar has had worldly peace. This is the king of the greatest nation up to that point. He has everything he could ever want. There's no bills that he has to pay. There's nothing that really should stress him out. The king, by all available information, being the ruler, should have some peace. He can do whatever he pleases to do, and yet, for the first time in his life, he's experiencing a supernatural peace that he could not receive based on how much money he had or how much power he had or how much influence he had. The king is experiencing real peace. And we know where this real peace comes from. Paul writes about it in the book of Romans, chapter 5. He says, or he writes in Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you have real peace? By putting your faith in the one thing that will take your stresses away and put on peace. Put on something that you cannot obtain on your own. In fact, we just went through this in our Bible study this uh, last week, and that is what we talked about, how beautiful it is when we can fully surrender to God knowing that he's the one that has saved us. When we put our faith in the fact that our Lord has already done everything we could ever possibly need, the stresses of this world become a little bit different. Become a little bit different because we have faith that after this world is done, after this life is done, there's something completely different happening. And because of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've experienced salvation. We have salvation. We've received it. So real peace comes from a faith in God that he's the one that's going to take care of it. And the king has certainly experienced this. He is sharing that to his people. Have peace like I've experienced peace. Go and live the way I've now begun to live. This is truly and a pretty amazing experience to see the, the king make a decree like this. And something, something had to have happened to King Nebuchadnezzar for this to occur. I mean, you read that first three verses and you have to think something occurred in Nebuchadnezzar's life that made him change his ways and live according to God's commands. And on the surface, it might be easy to assume that that is just the things that we've already read about. And those certainly have made a big impact. If you've read chapters 1 through 3 with us, you'll see how God has been impacting the king week after week as we've read through these chapters. We see how God's people, because they've been faithful to God's commands, have made dra drastic impact in the king's life. It's made him change how he sees things. But what we're going to see tonight as we continue reading through chapter 4 is the moment that the king got it. The moment the king actually figured it out he's been on the cusp of figuring it out he's had a lot of the right pieces the puzzle has been coming together but tonight is the night we see the king fully begin to understand who God is and his place in God's kingdom here is where we begin to see the change in the king's life starting in verse 4 we read I again in the first person I Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house prospering in my palace. Again, this is a man who had everything he'd ever want. He was prospering. He was at ease, or so he thought. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
And the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation." So again, one more time, we are seeing the king at the beginning having this worldly peace over him, and then through the course of the situation, something troubles him. And what could trouble a king that has worldly peace? A supernatural God that comes in and alarms him. And we see, in this moment, we see the king have a dream that alarms him so, so much that he brings in his wise men to interpret this dream for him. And if you've been here over the last several weeks, this might feel a little bit like deja vu because we've read something almost identical to this exact moment. We read of the king having a dream that alarmed him, and we read of him bringing in his wise men to interpret the dream for him. But this is not the same dream. This is a different dream, a second dream the king has had. And we're going to see very clearly this is a different dream. But even right now, we can see a difference because in these verses, we read that the king told the wise men what the dream was, which is something he did not do the first time. If you remember the first time he had a dream, he did not trust the wise men. And because he did not trust them, he hid the actual dream and told them, not only do you need to interpret the dream, but you also need to give me the dream itself. I need to know both of these for me to trust that you are telling me the truth. But for whatever reason now, the king has a different position, different posture. He brings in his wise men, and he tells them the dream, and then asks them to interpret it for him. But just like the first time the king had a concerning dream, this time the, the wise men, the people who are around him in his court, cannot interpret the dream. Once again, they failed in doing what the king wished. Once again, the king is left with no answers. But once again, the king is saved by Daniel. I love what it says here. It says, at last, Daniel came in before me. The king was happy to see Daniel. And why was the king happy to see Daniel? Because Daniel is the man that has been able to do what he needs done. Daniel, and at this point, he's just trying to figure out how Daniel's been able to do this, but Daniel is the guy that can do what the king needs him to do. And so when Daniel walks in, it is a relief to the king. And as you see here, the king is starting to get it. Like I said, the puzzle piece is coming together. The king is figuring it out. He is looking at Daniel and says, something's different about you. Your God working through you, you can do the things I'm looking to be done. The king is beginning to understand that something about Daniel's God is unique because every other God at this point has failed him. Every other God at this point has not been able to accomplish what the king wants. But Daniel's God, time and time again, Daniel's God has done exactly what the king needed done. And not always was it beneficial to the king, but it was the right answer. It was the truthful answer. Daniel's God has been able to answer him. But I think this section also reminds us that the king has not fully figured it out. He might have some pieces put together, but there's other parts that he really has not gotten put together yet. 
One, we see that he still calls him Belshazzar, and he says specifically, named after my God. So you can see there's still some relation to Biel, their God. We also see that he's given the title, Daniel's given the title, Chief of the Magicians, which if you bring that back to the original Aramaic, which this text was written in, this section of Daniel was written in, that title directly goes back to the pagan gods that they worship. And so for the king to still give him that title, you can see he doesn't fully get it. He gets some of it, as you can see. He understands that Daniel's God is accomplishing these things. He definitely is starting to see that Daniel's God is special, but he has not fully put the pieces together yet. And you're going to continue to see that as we go through the rest of this chapter. But nonetheless, Daniel is the man that can solve the king's problems. The king knows that Daniel can answer his interpretation, and so the king brings Daniel in and he gives him the interpretation. And here, or he gives him the dream asking for the interpretation. And here is what the dream was. I'm going to summarize it for you, but you can find it in chapter 4, verse 10 through 17. Here is the dream the king had, the second dream he's had in the course of the book of Daniel. And this is where it begins to get a little strange. The contents becomes a little strange. Here's the dream the king shares with Daniel. He tells Daniel that in his dream, he saw a giant tree a giant tree and he knew this tree was in the center of the earth this was the center of this world this giant tree and this tree was so large it provided shade for everything all the animals all the things it provided shade for all of them everything they needed it even had fruit on this tree that was able to sustain all the things they could come to this tree for the fruit it had this tree was mighty. This tree was strong. And it even says this tree was beautiful. It shares that this tree was something special. But then, halfway through the dream, similarly to the first dream we saw, it shifts gears. And in this dream, the king sees an angel. He calls it a watcher. Come down out of nowhere, or seemingly out of nowhere. And this angel makes a declaration. And the declaration says that this tree must be cut down cut down from the stump, leaving only the stump. This tree must be destroyed. And then, weirdly enough, the, the angel shifts language here because it goes from talking about the tree to then talking about a man, saying that this man, not only should it be destroyed, but this man now must go and lose his mind to be given the mind of a beast. And that this man, given the mind of a beast, must go live as a beast, eating the grass, drinking the dew, living as beasts would live. And for seven periods of time, this man must live as the beasts live. You can imagine why the king might be a little alarmed at this dream. And I would, I would argue that maybe, just maybe, the king kind of knew what this dream was about. I don't think he had all the pieces together, but I could imagine the dream scaring the king because he knows what the, what the dream means. Or at least he knows the direction the dream is going. But regardless, the, the, the king seeks wisdom from Daniel to interpret this dream for him. Call it a second opinion. What does this dream mean, Daniel? He says in verse 18, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able. The spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, once again, we see the king is figuring it out. 
My wise men weren't able to do what I need them to do, but you, filled with this holy God, you can do something for me. So tell me the interpretation. The king knows that Daniel can do this, and Daniel can. And what we see in verses 19 through 26 is Daniel coming to the king and offering him the interpretation to this dream the king just told him. Now in verse 19, we see that even Daniel was concerned about this dream. It says that his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel knows what he has to tell the king. He knows the truth of this dream, and it's not going to be a pleasant reality. Daniel understands that what he's about to tell the king is going to hurt. And so it alarms him. But even the king has to reassure Daniel and say, don't worry, tell me what this dream means. And so Daniel does what the king commands and tells him what the interpretation of this dream is. And here it is. And maybe, I'm sure you've probably gotten a good picture of it, but here is what the dream means according to Daniel. This dream where the king sees this giant tree this dream represents the king. That tree is the king. And he is mighty and he is strong and he is powerful. And his, his being, he can produce everything the people need. He can do everything the people desire. He has the ability to do anything the people could ever need. This king is a powerful king. Again, it's reminding us of chapter 2, where God has already confirmed to the king that he is indeed the most powerful king of all the world. This has been a pretty consistent theme among Nebuchadnezzar's life. God is not trying to pretend. Nebuchadnezzar, he is a powerful king, and God is making that known to him. But the second part of this dream is where it causes change, where it's going to change the way that Nebuchadnezzar sees the world. Daniel continues in his interpretation and tells him that when that angel appears, when that angel comes and makes that proclamation, he is indeed saying, King, you will be destroyed. That you are going to be cut down. You are going to be taken away. And just as the dream says, will happen, will happen. You will be taken away. Your mind will be lost and you will get, be given the mind of a beast. And you will be living as a beast would live. For seven periods of time, you will be living as a beast would live. You'll eat the grass the, the beast eat. You'll drink the dew the, 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 the beast drink. You will go to the wilderness and you will live the way a beast would live. Pretty strange thing for God to command the king to do. But Daniel is faithful to God and he tells the king exactly what this dream is all about. And that is the dream and its interpretation, the king is now heard. But just like any good pastor, Daniel does not leave this concerning message the way it is. Daniel ends by offering some application, some applicable information to help the king deal with what he's now heard. Daniel does not shy away from the hard truth, but he then offers ways to use that hard truth for good. And here is what Daniel tells the king. Hey, here is what I just told you. This dream is not fun for you. It's not going to be good. This dream is about you. Let's make no mistake. This dream is about you. But, and here's how Daniel puts it. It says, therefore, referring to the dream, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your inequities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity 
Daniel doesn't know the outcome of this situation, and he's not pretending to be the one that can fix it all for the king, but he says, maybe, maybe if you do these things, God will let you continue to prosper. I don't know, but maybe. Here's what you can do. And what does Daniel tell the king to do? It's quite simple. It's what we're called to do. Break off of your sins. Repentance. Daniel calls the king to turn around from his wicked ways and to repent and look to the Lord instead of looking to himself. Daniel reminds him that this is about God and that you should live accordingly. Repent of your sins and turn to him. And I can't confirm this, but I like to imagine Daniel reflecting on the scriptures that he knows, the, the, the scriptures that, are, that were provided for him, the ones that he already knew, like Isaiah 55, 7, where it says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Daniel knows the word of the Lord. Daniel knows what God is about. And so when Daniel is presented with this difficult conversation that he has to provide the king of this very difficult conclusion, he goes to the king and says, yes, this is tough, but understand this is the God I worship. Turn away from your sin, and he will do what he's shared with me in Isaiah. He will pardon you abundantly. He will show compassion on you. So now the king has a choice. The king has the choice to do what Daniel's providing or to continue living the way that he's been called, or he's been living. And as you're going to see in verse 28, the king does not live the way that Daniel calls him to live. In fact, if you look at verses 28 through 33, you're going to find that in 12 months, Daniel does not do what Dan, or the king does not do what Daniel called him to do. Twelve months later, the king is still living in pride. Twelve months after this experience, the king did not learn from his ways. In fact, we see the king say to himself in his palace, "It is not is is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty." That does not sound like a man who has humbled himself. It does not sound like a man who's fully understood what, the, what Daniel has shared with him. It does not sound like a man who has repented of his prideful heart. So 12 months later, the king is still living in his pride, and God does not let him forget what he promised would happen. And if you continue reading, you'll see that, that right after the king finishes saying these words, the Lord responds to him and says, did I not tell you this 12 months ago? Did I not warn you what was going to happen a year ago? There are things that I promised you, and the Lord does not break his promises. Yes, our Lord would have offered compassion. We know this but the king did not change his ways. And so what we see is exactly what that dream promised the king would happen. The king is, has lost his mind. The king loses his mind. The king is given the mind of a beast and the king runs into the wilderness and for seven periods of time, we don't know if that was seven months or seven years, all we know is that seven periods of time go by and the king lives just as a beast would have lived. 
Now this is incredibly strange. But what I find so interesting is when I was preparing for this message, I found documents where they have gone through this period of time in Babylon. And like any good king, his record keepers were not the greatest at being honest. If you were a king at this point, if you're a king now, your records kind of put you in the best of favor. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you imagine that? Well, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but they can't ignore the fact that for some period of time, the king just disappeared. And they found documents that point to this being true. There is a point in time where Nebuchadnezzar just wasn't there, and they couldn't figure out why he wasn't there. Records where the king should have been making decisions for their, for their nation, and he just wasn't there to answer them. Maybe not everyone understood what was happening, but we know what was happening. The king was in the process of being humbled by God. And the king was out in the wilderness living the way the beast would live. It's strange, but as you're going to see, it was an effective way to humble a king that would not be humbled. In fact, in verse 34, you see exactly what happens to the king. Once this 12 period of time is over, here's what happens to the king in verse 34. It says, at the end of the days, I... Again, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking, not some third party. Nebuchadnezzar is writing this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For this dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I have established in my kingdom, and, I still, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the honor and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That is a crazy statement for the king of Babylon. Think about that. The king, the most powerful man in the world, ends his decree by saying, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That is exactly what we've seen. As a king that seemingly would have been impossible to reach. I can imagine Daniel and Daniel's friends when they first arrived to Babylon looking to the way the king lived and said, surely God could not save Nebuchadnezzar. I can imagine in all these different stories we've read about, chapters one through three, these men who have done everything they can to deliver an honest and faithful command to God and not seeing the king fully get it, I'm sure all of them, Daniel and his companions, looking to the king and saying, there's no way the king would ever get it. There's no way God could save King Nebuchadnezzar. But now in chapter four, we see the impossible being done. And a king that in four chapters has not given up his pride looks to the heavens and says, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That is an amazing moment. And it points to the main idea for tonight's service that I want us all to reflect on is that if God can change the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, then no one is too far gone. Not one. And to be practical, we should act accordingly to that truth. 
I can imagine and I can think to my own life of people in my life that I looked to and, and thought, they're too far gone. God is done with them. God is, is finished with those people. Those people, they could never be changed. Those people are way too prideful. Those people are way too sinful. Those people hate Christians too much. Those people hate God too much. But the same guy who was throwing Hebrew men into a burning furnace just a chapter ago is now proclaiming that God is a mighty God and that he humbles those who are pride, prideful. Do you understand the radical change that has happened in this man's life? And so if we are to look at our brothers and sisters, our, our neighbors around us, and think that they're too far gone, then we're being arrogant to the scriptures. There is no one too far gone from God. His grace is so abundant, and his grace is for all of us. And so when we live out the Great Commission, when we go and live out what we know to be true, to go and reach those who are lost, who do not yet know God, we must reflect on verses like this, on sections of Scripture, where God changes those who no one expected to be changed. God humbled someone that no one expected to be humbled. And now, this man who has no business having a, a, a chapter in the Bible has written a decree about his love for the Lord and how the Lord has humbled him. And we're reading about it thousands of years later. No one is too far gone from God. Because if God can change the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, he can change ours. He can change those around us. As we conclude service, I'm going to encourage the band to come back up. And, and I'm going to share one last piece that I, I want to add to tonight's service. Because as we've done throughout this sermon series, we always come back to Jesus at the end of this. As I've said every week, although Daniel was a great man of God, Daniel did not die on the cross for our sins. And so let's look to Jesus and reflect on what he has for us in chapter 4. And here's what I came up with, or here's what I thought about. Daniel has been faithful to God throughout this, this book. Daniel has done what God has commanded and now we've seen God all throughout this book where it's really been about Daniel now we're seeing that this book has really been about Nebuchadnezzar where the main character has been Daniel but now we're seeing in chapter 4 that it's all about Nebuchadnezzar God has been working to change the heart of this king and seemingly it, it seems as if God was basically going through hoops jumping through hoops to save this man to humble him Every chapter we've seen God do something that has made Nebuchadnezzar go closer and closer to him, and now in chapter 4 we see it fully change over. God did a lot to save Nebuchadnezzar. God did a lot to work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God has done many things, things we might not even know about, to change the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. But let me be clear. Brothers and sisters, God has done more to save you and I than he ever did to save Nebuchadnezzar. Because through Jesus Christ, God came down to earth, lived a human life, lived in perfection, did everything right, fleed from temptation, accomplished everything you and I could have never accomplished, and at the end of it all, died in replacement of us. You and I deserve that cross, but it was Jesus who took that cross for us. And so yes, God jumped through hoops to save Nebuchadnezzar, but God's jumped through hoops to save us too. And the beauty of that situation is now we get to humbly submit to him and just praise and worship and put our faith in him because he's done everything for us. 
He did everything for us. So we ha- all we have left to do is thank him and live knowing that our lives have been saved through a Savior who accomplished everything before we could even try. So as we conclude service, I'm going to encourage you to stand with me. And I'm going to pray for us in a moment, but here's how I want us to respond. As we go into worship, we always have a response, and this can be at your seat, it can be at the altars, it can be wherever you need it to be, but I just want you to think and respond. We as believers know that our God has saved us, that our God is good, that our God is righteous, that our God has done everything for us. And so my encouragement, my response is twofold. One, I want us to think through what we've read tonight in Daniel chapter 4. And I want us to look at the fact that if our God saved Nebuchadnezzar, who in our lives do we need to help save? Who in our lives do we need to pour more into? Who in our lives have we, this might be hard to swallow, but who in our lives have we kind of assumed are too far gone? Maybe that's a coworker, maybe that's a friend, maybe that's a family member, a parent, a, su- a sibling, a child even. Who in our lives have we neglected because we just assume they're too far gone? I want to end service and praying for them. And just a few weeks ago, we ended service this way and, and God worked pretty wonderful ways in that service. It's personal details. I'm not going to get involved, but I just want to let you know God worked wonders in that service because we came and we had a heart posture of chasing after him and reaching those who do not yet know God. And so I'm going to encourage you as we close service, think think through those people who you know don't know the Lord and bring those people to the altars or sit down in your seat and, and bring them into prayer. Pray for them. Ask God to give you ways to help them. Ask God to give you opportunities to to share the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Ask God to do things like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, to, to radically change the way they see this world, to humble them. Because if Nebuchadnezzar can write in his own words that God can humble the prideful, he can humble us. And for many of us, he has. I'm gonna pray for us, and we're gonna conclude with worship. Like always, the altars are open. But take this time to reflect on what God's done in your own life and how you can share that with those who do not yet know the truth of the scriptures, the gospel.